Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the unadulterated milk of the word like a newborn baby, that you may grow by it. His divine power has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord and ask his guidance on our study this morning. Our Father, we're thankful for all that you've provided for us, for the richness of your word, uh, for the spiritual nourishment of your word, understanding from so many passages that it is by your word under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit that we are enabled to grow and mature spiritually, and that this doesn't happen overnight, but is a process that you have ordained for this church age as we walk by means of God the Holy Spirit. Father, there are so many distractions in each of our lives, so many different things that go on um, all around us in terms of family responsibilities, in terms of personal responsibilities, in terms of just all of the different uh, uh, cares and concerns we have in life, just taking care of that which you have provided for us that often it seems very difficult and challenging to take the time to really focus upon you and focus upon your word. We do that when we come together on Sunday morning, and we pray that you would use your word in our lives to really challenge us. As Scripture says, it uh, reproves and rebukes us and corrects us, but gives us instruction upon the right way in which we should think and how we should live. So, Father, we pray now that as we study your word, we would be challenged and and um, encouraged as we come to understand what it means to be forgiven by you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Our topic, continuing from what we began last week in Ephesians 4.32, is coming to understand uh, God's forgiveness. The passage that we're looking at in Ephesians 4.32 says that we are to be kind to one another, uh, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. That comparison is important. It gives us a standard and a model. And so we need to come to understand God's forgiveness as it is described in uh, in the scriptures. Now, this passage that we are covering began, this section really began with the therefore in verse 25, and it extends down through chapter 6, verse 9. It is one of the most, many people would say, the most practical uh, sections of Scripture. I don't really like that because I think all of it is practical. It all has ways to apply some to our thinking, some to more immediate things in our life. But it is an extremely personal section. And I pointed this out last time that beginning with verse 25, 
down through 6-9, we have approximately 37 imperative mood verbs, 37 commands. Uh, and these are just part of the various commands we find in Scripture that are directed to believers to instruct us on how we are to think and how we are to live. But it's not just limited to those imperative mood verbs, because in, in Greek you can express a command in, in ways other than uh, using an imperative mood verb. So there's a lot that's going on here that relates to uh, a personal uh, behavior in the Christian life. So to list them, what we see is in verse uh, chapter 426 down to 430, uh, we have seen nine commands so far, and I'm going to work our way through these until that, that sentence says we've seen all 35 of these commands. And we have three more in what we're looking at today. 425 says in the corrected translation, therefore having already put off the lie, let each one of you speak the truth. Now, that's not talking about not lying and telling the truth. It's speaking within the framework of the, of the truth of Scripture, speaking from a biblical worldview, uh, speaking truth, absolute truth, in uh, contrast to buying into the various uh, false assumptions of the culture around us. Second, we are to be angry and not to sin, indicating that there are times when we are tempted. We feel our emotions rise, whether it's in anger or some other passion, and we are instead not to sin, not to let that uh, be a, um, a test we fail, but that we are to apply the word and uh, remain in relationship with the Lord walking by the Spirit. Uh, then uh, the fifth command is to not give place to the devil. Those are related. When we are walking according to our sin nature, we are prone to demonic influence, not demon possession. We've talked about that many times. That is when a demon takes up personal residence within the body of a person, and that can only happen with unbelievers because with believers, their body has been made a temple for the Holy Spirit and by the Holy Spirit. And the word that is used there for temple is a very significant one. There are two words used for temple in the Bible. One is the word uh, hiros, which refers to the whole temple precinct. But the word that is used in that passage is he has made us a naos temple. That's the inner sanctum of the temple, the holy and holy place, the holy of holies and holy place inside the temple. So this is where God resided. And so God resides in us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And where God resides, there is no place uh, for a demon or the devil. So we don't give place to the devil here is not talking about is not talking about demon um, possession. It is talking about influence and all of the false ideas that come across in the world today that are not part of the truth 
are just demonic influence. It comes across from our peers, from our professors, from our parents, from all of the people that we associate with. We get it from the media, all kinds of different media, whether it is uh, songs that we hear on the radio, whether it is entertainment through film or other things. Every person who is an artist is expressing their worldview through their art, whether it's written uh, art in terms of literature or whether it is uh, music and song. No matter what it is, every person has a worldview, and if they are at all consistent, then that which they produce is something that comes out of that, that particular worldview. So we're not to give place to the devil, and if we're not walking by the Spirit, we're walking according to the sin nature, and that is a place of vulnerability to the uh, false teaching of Satan. Then there was the command uh, for the thief, those who steal, steal no longer, instead let him labor. So there are two commands there. Then in verse 29, uh, let no corrupt word, and that idea of corrupt word is in relation to speaking from the framework of the truth. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. Then the ninth, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. So in context, that has to do with uh, speaking outside of the framework of truth, but that would include every other kind of sin. And we saw that the word for uh, grieving there relates in the Old Testament to the events at um, uh, the, the bitter waters at Mara and at the rebellion at Meribah. And so that's the, that's a word for bitterness. And that's the first in this list of sins that verse 31 began with, uh, let all these things be put away. And bitterness was the first of them, a reminder of Meribah. And then we have the 11th, uh, command in verse uh, 32, be kind to one another. By and it, the forgiving isn't a command, but it is. It is telling us how to fulfill that command of being kind by forgiving one another, even as God for Christ forgave you. And then the last in this section is be imitators of God. So the two commands we're working with right now is the one to be kind to one another and be imitators uh, of God. So what does it mean to be forgiving one another? That's not always easy. It depends on circumstances, but there are times in our lives when we are betrayed. There are times in our lives when people do things intentionally to harm us or to hurt us. And there are times in our lives when we are uh, the victims of maybe crime or maybe fraud or many other things that can happen to us just because of our environment. They can come from within a close circle of family or friends, or they can come from those that we don't know. And so Scripture says that we are in relation to other believers, we are to forgive one another. So this passage that we're looking at, uh, beginning in verse 31, goes down through 5.1. The chapter break is at an unfortunate place. Let all bitterness, wrath, 
anger, clamor, and evil speaking. See, evil speaking there ties back to the corrupt word of verse 29 and um, how we speak truth with our neighbor. All of those need to be understood as part of the same overall context. Uh, evil speaking, be put away from you like you take off dirty, sweaty clothes after you've worked out at the gym. Uh, be put away from you with all malice or evil. And in contrast, the second verse says, be kind to one another, where our sin nature wants us to be angry, bitter, uh, to slander through sins of the tongue, and... Um, uh, and or overt action of taking physical action against someone. We are to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving, or it's actually a uh, participle of manner or means by forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. So if you didn't catch the thrust of even as God in Christ forgave you, he makes it clear in 5.1 that we are to imitate God in our life in this area of forgiveness. So these are the three commands that we have in this section to put away these mental attitude sins, sins of the tongue and overt sins, to be kind to one another, and to be imitators of God. So we have three different, um, or two different imperatives here, and the idea of um, be imitators, the, the actual command there is, again, this, this verb, genomai, which is used twice. It's used here with the be verb, or excuse me, it's used here with the be kind, and it's used here with be imitators. And it has the idea of becoming something that you weren't before. Becoming something that you weren't before. So we are to become kind to one another, and we are to become imitators of God. So these are the two verses, or probably we'll just look at 32 today to come to understand what it means to be forgiving of one another. So it should be translated because of that verb genomai in the Greek to become kind to one another. And this word for translated kind is a, the word, uh, Christos over here sounds like Christos, which is the word for, uh, Christ, but that is an I, not an E, ver, e vowel there. Uh, and this means to be kind. It means to be loving, and it means to be benevolent. Those are the ideas that uh, this word conveys. So it's in contrast to that natural reaction that we have when we have been uh, harmed or we have been hurt or somebody has done something, and it doesn't matter how extreme it is. It doesn't matter how unjustified it is because part of our reaction is, well, look at what they did. I am totally justified in having this kind of reaction because of what they did to me. No, you're not. Not at all. 
That's just, that's your sin nature talking. And this happens in all kinds of areas of life. It happens within families. It happens within marriages. It happens within, uh, partner, business partnerships. It happens, you know, on teams of whatever nature or people you're working with. And so uh, the way we are to be trained is that even when people say things to us that are insulting, uh, they do things that are that minimalize us or that act as if we are not significant or that we are ignored. We are to not respond evil for evil, but we are res- to respond out of grace. That means undeserved kindness. They don't deserve it. You're right. They don't deserve it. They have done things that are wrong and erroneous, but why should we lower ourselves to their level by thinking evil thoughts about them or engaging in uh, sinful behavior? So in contrast to the mental attitude sins mentioned of bitterness or resentment or anger, we are to respond out of kindness and not in a grudging way. Remember, a right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. So some people say, well, I responded in kindness. <laughs> no, you didn't. Your mental attitude wasn't right either. So you did it the right thing in a wrong way. You went through the form of the action. So the next thing we need to look at in this command is that it, to whom this is directed, uh, become kind to one another. Now, I have done a number of classes where I have gone through in detail all of the verses in the New Testament that are related to our responsibilities to one another. One another doesn't mean to one another human beings. One another in the New Testament refers to other believers in Jesus Christ. So we have to, we are to have a certain love within the family, those who are believers in Christ. Now you have to remember there are people who are believers in Christ who are just absolutely rebellious, obnoxious, unworthy, uh, people. But then you never were obnoxious or unworthy, were you? No, neither was I. But uh, we are to direct this towards anyone who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I just want to sort of summarize these commands. So if you're taking notes, you're going to have to write the Scripture references down fast because I'm not going to leave this up here for a lengthy amount of time. So what we see is the general overall command is that we are to love one another. Jesus said this in John 13, uh, 34 and 35, where he said, I give you a new command that you love one another, for by this all men will know that you are my disciples, not know that you are a believer, but know that you are a student of the Word of God and applying it in your life. That's what a disciple was, not just somebody who's a believer, but somebody who is a growing, maturing student of the Scriptures. So... That's the basic command, and you have this repeated a number of times in the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians 3.12, 1 Thessalonians 4.9. You also have it several times in 1 John, in 1 John 3.11 and 23, 4, 7, and 11, and 12. So John mentions this um, 
five, six times, 311, 323, 47, 411, 412, and 2 John 5. Now, remember when Jesus gives that uh, basic command, and it's on at the Last Supper, it's that night they had just observed the Lord's table, and before they departed, he is saying, I'm giving you a new command. And John was sitting right there next to him. And so Jesus said uh, that you are to love one another. And so when John writes his first epistle, uh, he repeats it six times. Actually, what he writes in First John is sort of his commentary and expansion on what Jesus taught in John 13, 14, 15, and 16 especially in relationship to how the believer is supposed to live. It's a contrast between the believer walking in the light and the believer who is walking in darkness. So we are to love one another. Now, everything else simply relates to different applications of the broad command to love one another. We have to recognize that we are members of one another. This is emphasized earlier in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 20, uh, 25, because we are members of one another. We're members of the body of Christ. It's also mentioned in Romans chapter 12, verse 5. In fact, you'll notice that several of these one another commands are in Romans uh, chapter 12. We are to be kindly affectionate with brotherly love. So that is just an expansion, a little extra verbiage there in Romans 12, verse 10, dealing with the same command to love one another. We are to have the same mind to one another. Have you heard that recently? As we've been going through Philippians chapter 2, this is a major emphasis for the Philippians because they are divided, they are fractious, they're fragmented, some of them are arguing uh, with one another. And so the the basic message of Philippians uh, from about Philippians 126 uh, down to 4.9 is that they are to be unified. They are to put aside their differences, serve one another, and uh, think more highly of each other than of themselves. So this idea of having unity, the same mind to one another, is emphasized in Romans 12.6 as well as 15.5. We are to be teaching and admonishing one another. Now, I hear several of you thinking, but I don't have the gift of teaching. doesn't matter. Everybody can teach something to somebody. And so we are to teach and admonish. Now, this isn't just everybody. You can look across uh, the congregation and see somebody, and they do something that you don't think is right. Well, you don't have a framework for saying anything to them. This is for those with with whom you have built uh, a relationship where you've come to know them and that they're different uh, levels of intimacy that we have with different people, but you have to, whenever you're teaching, instructing, correcting someone, it has to be within the framework of establishing a relationship of trust with people. You're not just sticking your nose in somebody else's business, but we are to teach and admonish one another, Romans 15:14 and Colossians 3:16. We are also to submit to one another. In fact, as we, when we get into chapter 5, especially when we get down to the section where we're talking about the re- relationship of husbands and wives and children to parents, we have the 
statement at the at the introduction of that in 521 that to submit to one another in the fear of the Lord. So it's not an autocratic type of submission, which some people take it as. It is a working relationship, and we are to in some sometimes uh, give preference uh, to one another's wishes and desires, and that's part of love. We're to comfort one another. 1 Thessalonians 4.18 and 5.11, Paul writes, comfort one another with these words. And in the middle of the, between those two sections, he talks about uh, what happens to those who physically die and they're absent from the body face to face with the Lord, but they await the rapture. Uh, when they will be taken to be with the Lord in the air. And so by understanding those, the teaching of Scripture on what happens after death and the future rapture when we receive our resurrection bodies is how we are to comfort one another, edify one another also in First Thessalonians 5.11. And then we are to exhort one another. Exhortation basically means to challenge and encourage each other to continue to be steadfast and walking by means of the Spirit, walking with the Lord. And that's in Hebrews 3.13 and Hebrews 10.25. Now, these are all positive Commands. They are positive things that we are to do with one another uh, to encourage and to demonstrate our love for one another. But then there's also the contrast that we find in a number of other passages of things that we ought not do, things that we should not do. We are not to judge one another. Romans 14, 13. How many times do we hear of a situation or we see a situation, usually some kind of personal conflict or something that somebody does, and immediately we want to conclude that we are omniscient enough, there's humor there. We're not omniscient at all, okay, to be able to determine the facts of the matter and who's right and who's wrong. And we immediately jump to some sort of illegitimate, evaluation. Uh, do not judge one another, Romans 14, 13. Second, don't bite and devour one another. That's just a very graphic metaphor for maligning or slandering somebody, uh, using very negative things about what other people do and uh, causing them to uh, uh, feel bad about themselves, basically. Uh, not provoking or envying one another in Galatians 5.28. So you have opportunities in conversation. Somebody says, well, this is what I did, and you know that something better happened to you, but you're going to keep your mouth shut because you don't want to make them feel bad, give them the opportunity of doing well. And we don't envy one another. God has a plan for each of us, and because God chooses to elevate or to bless someone in some way is not a basis for us to be jealous or envy them. We are not to lie one another. Now, this is a somewhat parallel passage in Colossians 3.9, but it's stated differently than the way it is stated in Ephesians 4.25. There it says, do not put off the lie. It's a noun there. It doesn't have a... Uh, an ing there. It's not a gerund or a participle, but yet it is translated in some places, uh, put off the lie, I mean, excuse me, put off lying. 
but Colossians 3.9 is the passage that states what people think Ephesians 4.25 is saying, and there it's specific, do not lie to one another. And in James 4.11, do not speak evil of one another. So these are the passages that give us a description of how we are to behave towards one another. So we are to become kind to one another, and then this is further uh, described as being tender-hearted. The word is translated as tender-hearted or compassionate. The word in the Greek begins with an EU, and that always has something, something positive. It's just a prefix that indicates something that is, is good. For example, if you're going to say something nice about somebody at a funeral, it is called a eulogy from the Greek word eulogeo. Okay, so it is saying something good. If you are going to talk about something that maybe is uh, not best said in polite company or it seems to be kind of gross or something else, you use a euphemism. See, the EU, you use something that is uh, that, that makes it sound a little bit better than it is. So that EU comes across in a lot of different words in English. And so this is combined with the word splot which has to do with your internal bowels. And so the idea was when you have deep passions or deep emotions, you're moved, you feel it in your gut. And how many times do we even use that expression? Well, how, how, how do you feel? What, what does your gut say? And uh, or somebody is upset, and then all of a sudden they ha- start having uh, problems uh, with their stomach. Or somebody is is moved with compassion. So the Greeks, and this is really a term, probably goes back to a to a Hebrew concept. The, the Jews would would relate emotions to different body parts and organs. For example, they would talk about the heart when they're talking about the the, the brain or the mind, and they would talk about. Uh, the bowels being moved, and they're not talking about going to the restroom. They're talking about somebody who is deeply compassionate uh, with somebody else. So the command here is to become kind to one another, to become tender-hearted or compassionate to others and what others ha- ha- have done, because people sin. You may not like it, but when you look in the mirror, you learn, you're looking at somebody whose heart is deceptive and wicked above all things. We are described in Scripture as um, as sinners, even after we're, we're 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 saved. Jesus, talking to his disciples, said, "You being evil, know how to give gifts, good gifts to to men." Now, how many times have you thought of the disciples as being evil? Not much. We try to elevate them, but we all have a sin nature, so we're all susceptible to failures and flaws and faults in many different ways. So we are not to be in a point where we think that we are necessarily better than someone else. And everybody has certain things that really get to them, and if somebody does the X, Y, or Z to them, it's very difficult for them to forgive them because they have been 
they've been hurt. Their feelings have been hurt. And so it takes time sometimes for these things, for us to get past some of these things. This word that's translated tender-hearted shows up in 1 Peter 3, 8, and 9, and it is um, the same same word translated tender-hearted as well in 1 Peter 3, 8. 1 Peter 3, 8, we read, Finally, as he brings, as he gets ready to close, now remember 1 Peter has more than three chapters. That's 2 Peter. It has five chapters. So he says, finally, he's a preacher. It takes a while. Finally, all of you, be of one mind. Where have we heard that? All of you, be of one mind. We're to be of one mind with one another, the same mind with one another. All of you, be of one mind, having understanding for one another. Love as brothers. Be tender-hearted. Be courteous. Courtesy is something that has evaporated from our culture. If you don't believe it, spend the next five minutes driving over to I-10, get up on the freeway and go three exits, and by then you will have had numerous occasions to realize that nobody knows what common courtesy is anymore. Or just go over to my favorite place is uh, the H-E-B parking lot over off of Bunker Hill. And you will see a number of people. In the last three weeks, I've been either first or second car, coming out of a parking lot onto a busy street where I'm making a right turn and there's a lot of traffic going by. And then I've had somebody who's three or four cars back from me pull out of line, come all the way around and cut in front of me or the car in front of me because they're just too impatient and self-absorbed to wait in line and to wait their turn. I mean, it's just amazing. And we see this all the time. We wonder why there's road rage. Um, we're to be courteous with one another and courtesy and etiquette. And I read this. I wish I could find the, the place. I've gone back many times to look for it, but it is one of the major, major books on etiquette that going, that actually this was a 19th century ver- version and preface stated that the reason we teach etiquette and good manners is so that we can control our baser instincts. That's why it's important for parents to start teaching your kids how to uh, properly eat, how to control their emotions, saying yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, please, thank you, all of those various uh, words, but it all boils down to self-control because we are showing a measure of kindness and goodness to other people. So, And it's biblical. We are to be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling. But on the contrary, blessing, knowing that would be causative participle because you know that you were called to this. We are to walk according to the high calling with which we have been called, uh, Paul says in Ephesians, Ephesians 4, one. So we are to be consistent with that. And we do this, and the next word is charizomai, which here is a participle, and so it's a participle of means or manner. It's describing how to be kind to one another. How are we to be kind to one another? How are we to be tender-hearted? It is by forgiving one another. 
And what does it mean to forgive? So we started this some last time. Hopefully we have time to get further into it today, even though it's already kind of late. Uh, two words are used for forgive. The first is afiemi, which is uh, the uh, verb form. Uh, the noun is aphasis, and uh, they both have the idea of canceling or remitting a debt. They're used in financial circumstances or uh, pardon or forgiveness in relation to misbehavior. So this indicates the and emphasizes the act of forgiveness. The other word is charizomai, and this has the idea of being gracious. The root word is charis, the noun for grace, and it is the idea of showing favor or being gracious to others. And I actually read in a commentary yesterday and I had not read this section in a long time, and I went back to it, and I'm not going to mention his name because he's a professor who should know better, and at one time was the head of the Greek department at Dallas Seminary, and he said this should be translated to be gracious. He ignores the usage, and he's done a very fine job on most things, but here he just I think he just missed it because the word charizomai has this idea at its core of, of undeserved favor showing favor or kindness. That's the core meaning. But it is also used of forgiving a financial debt just as afiemi is. So it, there is an overlap of the two words. And so at that point, they become synonymous. And there are uh, three passages where it's used in uh, the seventh chapter of Luke. And in the first one, it really doesn't have much to do with our topic. It's talking about Jesus uh, healing numerous people, and to the blind he gave sight. It's charizomai. That's the core meaning of the word, meaning to graciously heal the person. There was nothing uh, uh, required of the person. He just did it out of his own, on the basis of his own character. But then we get a little further into a very long chapter, and we see this situation, Jesus uh, answered and said to him, so he's talking to uh, this man, Simon, and he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. Uh, so Simon says, teacher, say it. So he gives a little parable, Jesus does. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. So what are we talking about? We're talking about money. The Bible says a lot about money. So we're talking about money. One owed 500 denarii, one the other owed 50. And when they had nothing with which to pay, so you've got two deadbeats here who owe a lot of money and neither one of them can pay anything, he freely, that is the creditor, freely forgave them both. The word for forgave is charizomai. So clearly it has a financial application here in the parable. It is talking about canceling a debt. He freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? And so Simon answered, he said, I, I suppose the one who, with whom he forgave more. Same word, charizomai. It's used in the Matthew uh, presentation of what we refer to as the Lord's Prayer. It's actually the Disciples' Prayer, where in Matthew, Matthew's version says, forgive us our debts, and there it is, afiemi. So both words are related to 
canceling a financial uh, debt. And that financial aspect is important. For example, in both Ephesians 1.7 and Colossians 1.14, Paul connects forgiveness with redemption. And I said last time, redemption always has to do with paying a price. You redeem something, you you go down and you go to uh, hawk a, an item that you have at a pawn shop, and they'll give you a ticket, and if you get the money, then you can go and redeem it by paying back the money, and then you get the item back. So redemption always has something to do with paying a price. So does forgiveness for canceling a debt. So when it, when we read these passages and they say, in him we have redemption uh, through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, we have to understand where that redemption, where was that price paid, and it was paid at the cross. So what we see is we'll go through these four categories of forgiveness in the next couple of weeks, that the forgiveness is something that is related to God. It is God-directed. So forgiveness directed towards God, where the justice of God is satisfied, that's the doctrine of propitiation, is satisfied by the payment of the debt, and this occurs at the cross. So in Colossians, well, I've got a better, we'll skip to another slide on this. Uh, This, the first three kinds all relate to God's forgiveness of us. So we have this passage in Colossians 2, 11 through 15. For sake of time, I'm going to skip to verse 13 because that's where the heart of this is located. And it, it, I translate this because the participle, it begins with a participle, and it should be a temporal participle, when you were dead. So it's talking about the time when you were spiritually dead, you didn't know know the gospel, you had not trusted in Christ yet, you're still spiritually dead at that moment in time, just prior to faith in Christ, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him. Now we have that same phrase in Ephesians 1. Uh, 2.7, where we realize that, that it, what precedes that is faith. But what looking at it from God's perspective, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Now, that's just a pretty much a literal translation of the participle, but we should translate it with the, it's a causal Participle. So we should translate it as I've underlined it here. Uh, he made you alive together with him because he had already graciously canceled all of our transgressions. Now, when did he do that? See, a lot of people think that you, you, you got your forgiveness when you trusted Christ as Savior. But that's not what is said here. What is said here is talking about something that happened historically when Christ was on the cross. So we read this, and it reads like this. Uh, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, 
He made you alive together with Him because He had already graciously canceled all of our transgressions. That's charizomai. He had already graciously canceled them. How? That's the next phrase. And the next phrase, by canceling out the certificate of debt. Is certificate of debt a financial concept? Yes, it is. Now, the word that's used here is a different word. It's a word that literally means to wipe something out or to blot it out. And it is used that way in uh, Acts 3.19 and a couple of other passages uh, in the New Testament. So how did he cancel our transgressions? He did it when he canceled or wiped out the certificate of debt that consisted of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way. Look at that last clause, having nailed it to the cross. It doesn't say he canceled it when you trusted in Jesus as Savior. He canceled, Christ paid the penalty for sin, period, at the cross. Now, there's three problems we all have. Number one is we have a sin penalty assigned against the human race. Number two is we're spiritually dead because of Adam's original sin. And number three is we don't have the kind of righteousness that God has. So what happens at the cross is the first problem, the sin penalty, is eradicated. Christ pays the penalty for our sins. But we're still spiritually dead, and we still don't have righteousness. When you trusted Christ as Savior, what happened? God imputed to you the righteousness of Christ, and he declared you justified. That solved the problem of a lack of righteousness. And you were spiritually dead. He made you alive together with Christ simultaneously. So God's part is that, or Christ's part is he pays the penalty. And so the first problem is dealt with, the legal penalty for sin. But we already, but we still have the other two. We, we still don't have righteousness and we're still spiritually dead. So he imputes to us the righteousness of Christ and declares us justified. And at the same time, he makes us alive together with Christ so that we're no longer spiritually dead, but spiritually alive. Now, all of this is because at the cross, we were forgiven. So I'm going to skip ahead to another another slide here just to close it out, that when we look at the ways in which we have been forgiven. This is the first one. Forgiveness was directed to God where the justice of God cancels the debt of sin for all mankind. And I'm going to call this forensic just, forensic payment, forensic forgiveness. Every human being has that. Everyone. That relates to unlimited atonement. But what happens next is we have to believe in Christ. Then we're forgiven positionally. And third, we will be uh, experience experiential forgiveness when we confess our sins. So we'll come back uh, next time and look at two, probably two and three, pull this together a little more. Because then, once we understand how God forgives us through Christ, 
then we can use that pattern to forgive one another with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to come to understand uh, the dimensions to forgiveness in the Scripture. That the word forgiveness does not always refer to exactly the same thing and that there are these different facets to it that come out in these different uh, different phrases. So, Father, help us to understand how you forgave us for Christ's sake that we might come to be able to forgive others in a genuine way and recognizing that the, this idea of, of being tenderhearted and kind uh, is a part of the fruit of the Spirit. It is not something that we can generate on our own, but something that God the Holy Spirit develops in us as we walk by Him and as we grow spiritually. Father, we pray that this might be used to help those who've never trusted Christ, those who are unsure of their salvation, understand the truth of the gospel, that Jesus Christ died on the cross. He paid the penalty for our sins. Our sins were forgiven. And as Paul states in Acts 13, 38, we preach the forgiveness of sin to all mankind. It is part, it is one way to express the gospel. And so, Father, we pray that those who are unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny would take this opportunity to trust in Christ, to respond positively to the good news that our sins have been paid for and Christ has died for us that we might have everlasting life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.